1: Hello, welcome. Thank you for downloading the Times Red Box podcast. I'm Luke Jones. I'm sitting in for Matt Shirley all this week. Don't worry, Matt will be back next Monday. Today, there's absolutely loads in store. We're going to be talking about trade. We're going to be rifling through Liz Truss's in-tray. Australia is wrapping up somewhat, but what else does she have to be thinking about? That US free trade agreement, when on earth is that happening? An upgraded uh, Canadian trade deal, is that on the cards? We'll brief you ahead. Also, we've got some of our pre-pandemic professors as well. First, though, our columnists today, Helen Lewis from The Atlantic and Rosamund Irwin from The Sunday Times. Can I start with your uh, recommendations of rubbish television, please, Um, Rosamund?
2: well it's not rubbish at all but everyone who hasn't yet seen it should watch the whole of call my agent it it's good fun it's a bit rubbish and, and it's witty it, it, it has its moments of being very silly particularly towards um the end of the third series and the fourth series but um it's not rubbish really um but it's definitely light and escapism tv
1: i slightly bailed on that. well i did definitely bail on it during series 1 when i wasn't enjoying it and then someone in this office here said oh well, it really gets good around sort of towards the end of series 3 and it's like i'm not not spending that much time on it, to be honest. <laughs> Helen, rubbish television for Rishi?
3: I mean, I don't believe in the designation of rubbish television. Television you enjoy watching is by yes. definition not rubbish. Feel no guilt about this. Um, but I am going to make Rosie's recommendation at positively highbrow by saying... S.A.S. Who Dares Wins. Oh, my Sunday night appointment viewing. What I really love is that actually it's stealthily a programme all about male mental health, right? How important it is if you were bullied at school or abused or whatever it might be, to go and talk to a therapist and let it all out. But it's cunningly disguised through the medium of angry men who are killers (laughs) shouting right two inches from your face in the kind of Scottish Highlands. Um, I love it. I can't get enough of it.
1: Can I also uh, throw into uh, into the uh, bucket um, 24 hours in police custody? absolutely yeah. fantastic television i mean a lot of it is just quite over dramatic no comment interviews but um re- like that is absolutely i think it's the best of television anyway move us on actual news stories um first thing i want to ask you about is uh, what's happening with Nomi osaka four-time grand slam winning uh tennis champion and she's pulled out of, of the french open all because of this argument she doesn't want to to, to speak to the media um it's quite a sad state of affairs Rosamond, isn't it
2: um, I think it's really sad. And obviously, her mental health is the priority here. Um, there's an interesting point about interviewing, though. I mean, so I've, I've done an awful lot of interviews, including with sports stars and sports stars are always sort of media trained out of saying anything remotely interesting. You know, they're sort of taught to say absolutely nothing that's, that's going to make a good headline. Um, And and I've always thought it's a real shame because it means when you finally find one who actually says something interesting, they get a huge amount of attention on them because they're actually sort of speaking and saying something human rather than a kind of. um, But but it's really sad that she finds this such a horrific pressure. And I just I mean, she did say that the media actually hadn't been that brutal to her. Um, Though I do wonder if a lot of it as well is that it gets attention on social media where she may not have, you know, she's a woman and a non-white woman, and I do wonder if she gets um, abuse on social media because, you know, we've had an awful lot about how much um, black uh, footballers, you know, get abuse um, online and and in person. Um, So I did wonder if that was a dimension here and and that that makes these appearances really hard for her. Um, But I, I do find it really sad, and I do think the difficulty is whilst obviously her mental health comes first, um, it is actually important that people speak to the media. You know, that there's a job to be done there that, that does matter. And I think trying to make it as, as painless as, pos- as possible for people is really important, but also, you know, how, how do we make people comfortable with those conversations if they find them hard it is a challenge.
1: Helen, what do you make of this? It is a difficult balance, but do you think it... Um, it- tips either way in terms of uh, more towards open access for, for the people covering these kind of tournaments or you know the well-being of the players
3: well i think the problem is that if you look at the simply like the commercial aspect of this. There is no prize money in tennis if the games aren't televised, if the sponsors don't get the branding and promotion that they need. So even though, um, you know, she walked off court without doing the the interview before getting chucked out of the tournament, you know, she still gave a television uh, interview to, I think, a Japanese station because she's contractually obliged them as part of her sponsorship deal. So quite a lot of this isn't about kind of evil media that's just desperate to ask people questions about why are you so rubbish at tennis immediately after someone's lost. It's a lot of it's about the fact that the people whose logo is on your trainers demand that you do that as a result in in order to kind of fund your career and and lifestyle so I think that some of it goes to kind of default media bashing as if the media just love to tear people down well actually it's all part of a kind of quite complicated funding arrangement that said I cross I'm not going to die on the hill of defending the post-match press conference because (laughs) I have to say I can't trying to think of one that has ever surfaced anything kind of like vaguely interesting is, yeah. is not possible so I think there is a there's a broader principle which is yet yeah, these tournaments cannot exist without money and that money is dependent on press coverage um, but whether or not specifically the post you know why did you lose immediately after you've lost you know that is that is a different question I think.
1: And also as well as a uh, uh, general uh, mental health well-being the, the point that Naomi Osaka makes is that um, it, it could necessarily impact on Performance. If so much of of elite sports, Rosamond, is about your uh, mental uh, state, uh, that actually it could you know seriously damage actually how successful she is.
2: Well, absolutely, and I think that's a challenge, isn't it, for all sports stars? They've got to be incredibly resilient. Um, it's a challenge, probably, for all of us, really. Um, you know, you've got to, but particularly in sport, where obviously incredibly high stakes. Um, you know people are screaming at you you know fans are screaming at you or they're screaming you know in support of the other side I've always wondered with tennis you know because it's it's one person on another the difficulty is you know I watched a match where the um, crowd just sort of turned against somebody and so they were all cheering for the other person and I thought what does that do to you to have you know the entirety of, of Wimbledon screaming the name of someone else yeah you know totally supporting someone else and I would think yeah that would be really deeply upsetting um you know so so it is a real challenge um I I agree with Helen the problem here though is, is you know all all big sport now is so driven by finances that they've got to find ways to make the model work and and that way you know is to do with sponsorship and uh, I agree that this sort of does feel the default thing that the media gets blamed, whereas actually, you know, there's an awful lot of other stuff going on here.
1: Let's move on to an interesting story which broke in China yesterday. Uh, an announcement that... Uh, so at one point we had the, the one-child child policy. In 2015, OK, they upped that, you can have two children. Now, couples can have up to three children um, because of some quite worrying census data there showing a, a, sleep, a steep decline in birth rates um you think Helen Lewis why don't just if you're now saying it's up to three why not just say do what you like
3: well actually I mean in a way that almost probably wouldn't matter because birth rates have you know have declined across the developed world and and across Europe there are very few countries I can't think actually any European country where the average birth rate is above three anyway in most countries now it's around or below the replacement rate um, the problem with this is that there's been a kind of rash of natalist policies um, in the last couple of years. So Hungary is the really obvious example. Victor Orban, the very authoritarian prime minister there, said, you know, we don't want more immigrants, we want more Hungarians. So it was explicitly framed in this kind of xenophobic way. But they had kind of weird things like you get, a, I think you get money off a people carrier if you have more than four children. And, I, you know, I, I don't have kids, so I can't, you know, speak to this, but I I'm, can't imagine that for many people, the decision about whether to have three or four children is contingent on some money off a people carrier. So what you have is these policies that kind of turn birth rates into a kind of political issue without really actually doing very much about them. Um, and that's very worrying to me about when we look at the trajectory of, of, of birth rates across the developed world, about where that's going to go in the next couple of 100 years, because really the rhetoric that's going to come out is we've given women too much education and now they don't want to have kids. And that's what underlies it, as well as the kind of racist belief that children, that there are children being born in other countries, you know, particularly in sub Saharan African countries, but not here. So actually, are we going to be kind of drowned out? And that's where you get the kind of great replacement um, racist conspiracy theories coming out. So it's a really, really tense and, and worrying subject.
1: And aside from uh, vouchers for family cars, Rosamond, uh, th- these are huge cultural shifts aren't they and actually just a tweak in government policy isn't necessarily going to mean that all of a sudden everybody changes what they're doing because i guess if you if you grew up in a china or a country where everyone was really just having one child you might end up having one child just because that's what's happening around you similarly if you you know live in a a part of the world where people have loads more children you're more inclined to do the same so these kind of shifts will take absolutely ages to to change in people
2: Yeah, and it feels incredibly cruel to all of those who've been punished um, for having more than one child. Um, And obviously, the most extreme end of that is, you know, forced abortions, forced sterilizations. But we're also talking about quite hefty fines. So I have a relative who lives in China. Um, He married a Chinese woman and they have three children and he has been heavily fined for that. And it's really hard to enroll the last child in any kind of education, in childcare, all of that stuff, um, they make it incredibly difficult. So, I mean, for him, obviously, this is good news because he's not going to be quite so um, cruelly punished for that. Um, the difficulty for me, there's a there's a broader point here. So, uh, Helen's absolutely right. We're going to see massive demographic changes. Um, so, Nigeria, which is currently probably about the seventh most populous country in the world, is going to become... Uh, over the next sort of 70 years the second most populous country in the world and you're going to have enormous pressure on resources there um i have i've been there fairly recently but you know pre lockdown obviously yeah. and you know just the queues of traffic in lagos are horrific i mean you know the pressure in on all sorts of things is going to be is going to be terrible there whereas china is going to see a decline in the number of people as Uh, as much of Europe is already starting or or moving towards, obviously, migration sometimes um, means population continues expanding for a while. Um, To me, the thing that our government's going to have to look at, because we've seen, having had a higher birth rate than countries like Italy and Spain um, for a long time, ours is starting to dip. And the problem with demographic issues is that governments tend not to look at them because they're they're long term problems yeah. you know a child today only enters the workforce in in 20 or so years um so they tend to be heavily neglected by governments but for me the big thing having just had a child is you know statutory maternity pay is 600 pounds you know, women can't afford to be out of the workforce. We've set up a society that relies on two incomes and being mm. out of the workforce is so wounding to your family finances that, um, that, that that's incredibly difficult for people. And then the prohibitive cost of childcare as well. You know, I was looking at that and it, around me, which is one of the most expensive places for childcare in the country, um it'd be about 1300 pounds a month well Ooh. I won't have much money left yeah exactly I mean it's about the worst place in the country um for full-time childcare. so I wouldn't have much money left once I paid my mortgage and that you're sort of running to stand still essentially um and obviously you only get any free childcare when the child is three so you've got these two years potentially where you're incredibly financially squeezed Um, So that's what I think that our country needs to look at, needs to look at childcare costs and whether we're giving enough support to women uh, when they're on maternity leave and fathers, I should add, you know, paternity leave is really important, too, because it stops this being a disproportionate penalty to women. And, And I'm reassured that some companies have started to equalize what men and women receive. And I hope more move towards that.
1: I'm going to ask you about the, obviously, the, the, the ongoing pandemic we're living through in a moment. But first, slightly more important matters, um, the wedding that happened in Downing Street over the weekend. And there's the interesting details that are slowly coming out through the papers about the extent, uh, the length. That we've gone to to try and keep it secret. Um, I read this morning, Helen Lewis, that Carrie uh, Johnson rented three decoy outfits along with the white dress she rented, um, just so in case anybody spotted them uh, being carried through the front door, they wouldn't they wouldn't think that a wedding was afoot. Very clever.
3: I mean, it was a quite a, a well-executed. I mean, in a way, you think I wish that they put her in charge of the COVID response. Yeah, exactly. Because this yeah. was a lot better planned from everything that there I can see. There are plenty say. of leak
1: inquiries you can get her hands. You can get her right, hands
3: but but yeah, I thought this was really interesting actually, and and the the eco overtones of it are, are interesting. It's it's more than a kind of frivolous story on that point because, you know, we've got to this idea where you know I, I walk past a. Um, Primark yesterday and there was a t-shirt on sale for £3 in the window and, and the cost of that is, yes, it's £3 to you and that seems brilliant, but the cost of that both to the people who had to make that t-shirt and also to the environment and all the resources that's taken up for, for clothes to be so incredibly disposable mm. is really high uh, and it's a really kind of one of those unfashionable things to say, but actually, what, you know, I, I don't think that, that kind of renting clothes is going to make a huge dent in, in the problem immediately, but it is a really interesting solution. Um, to to go, kind of, why buy? You know, wedding dresses are, are the, one of the most wasteful things that you can buy. You know, people are spending thousands of pounds on stuff that you're only going to wear for you know six hours. Um, it's extraordinary. And and so that was, I thought that was a really interesting kind of. If that becomes something that it becomes more acceptable to do, I think both for people on a budget that would be really helpful, and also for the environment too.
1: Hmm. because Bosman, you, you see it for um sort of very important moments people people renting uh clothes you, men with tuxes obviously um kilts for wedding people hire there's a whole thing with ball gowns isn't there and for weddings and things that women can buy but wedding dresses is, is a slightly separate thing but also just everyday clothes people are just always going to be snapping up three pound t-shirts aren't they
2: well like like helen i hope that doesn't keep happening because the cost environmentally is so horrific of that i mean obviously clothing as an industry is so damaging to the planet um on on this i mean I find it a little bit sad the idea of not wanting to hold on to your wedding dress though. I mean all all full renting clothes generally and, and I think she's given a really good advert to that service, I would say. They must be thrilled because it, it's a nice headline for the, for for um for Downing Street because it looks sort of frugal, doesn't it? Mm. When all this attention's been on how much money Boris Johnson spends Million and the pound redecoration. Wallpaper. Exactly. The extraordinarily expensive wallpaper. Um so you can see why it looked it looks good from there point of view but it also great great advert for renting clothes but um but for me i i did buy my wedding dress and i just feel with it that it is something that sentimentally somebody offered to buy mine a couple of years ago so sort of picture not a couple of years ago a year ago and um and I just I couldn't part with it I just it was something I wanted to keep now mine admittedly could be converted into a going out dress
3: um, yes. by removing no one
2: ever does that Roz. stop but lying no to yourself no one ever ever re-dyes exactly, exactly that dress. what I was going to say right so mine isn't mine isn't purely white so it's not a it's not the colour it's you know it's got pink flowers on it and it could be used as a summer dress but of course part of you thinks oh I don't quite want to cut off the train do I <laughs> um, do you ever just uh, pop it
1: on just if you're at uh, home alone just think oh, I'll just walk around the house this for a bit
2: the tragedy would be having had a baby I'm not sure it will fit entirely at the back so um that's an ambition to get back to um yeah I don't know I I worry that um the zip wouldn't do up and I'd feel terrible about it so so at the moment it's sitting it's it's actually gosh it's even worse is that my parents not even in our house so it's just more rubbish for them that they've attracted um but yeah I couldn't quite part with it and and I I did think that was a little telling because I did I did weigh it. You know they were they were making quite a generous offer on it, um. Mm-hmm. I just couldn't quite bear to. Um,
1: very very finally, can I ask you about the the scenes we saw at Twickenham yesterday? Uh, not rugby, but under thirties running. I saw in some videos to go and get their jab yesterday. I hope Helen, and I'm slightly annoyed because I think this might be the case that the over thirties um, got. Appointments and schedules and things they can put in their calendar. And now we might be getting closer to kind of the there's 20,000 doses in this place run and people in their 20s will just do that.
3: Yeah, but as a fellow kind of conscientious planner ahead, I think you just have to accept that the world is built so that we have to allow people who don't plan ahead also to kind of get stuff and do stuff, and that's annoying. I feel like we're being punished for doing things right, but isn't it a wonderful problem to have? I mean, all this time about worrying about vaccine hesitancy, and you know, and, and other countries having problems with take up, and in Britain we've got kind of twenty-five-year-olds literally running to Twickenham because they're so desperate to get the vaccine. I um I know. I know. It, 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 I'm sure it upsets your planning heart. But yeah. this is objectively a good
1: thing. No, but also because it was sort of slightly out of reach because I, I live in North London and I saw this on Twitter yesterday afternoon. They said, if you can get here for half past seven, and I was on Google Maps. I thought, OK, it'll take me an hour and a half to get there. I'll get there for by the time I was through, it's going to be about seven. I thought, do I risk it? Then I saw online that there were lots of queues of people and it just thought, is this what I'm going to have to go through to get my vaccine? It seems like such a pain now.
2: Um, I suspect this is kind of more of a one-off, isn't it? I mean, they may, do, they may have further ones of these, but they're still going to have to go through the whole of, of giving everyone a bit younger. I actually had mine on Monday, coincidentally. Congratulations. So um, I know, and it, I have been incredibly envious of all these people posting about it. And then I joined in and probably made all the 20-somethings really annoyed um, by, by saying, yeah, finally. Um, but um, but it, it, it was incredibly... So I had mine at, at Roehampton queen mary's um car park uh and it was a really efficient thing i was incredibly impressed all these lovely volunteers yeah. and um and i just did think it was an incredibly well-run thing whereas some some people have told me they've had a long wait when they've had mm. theirs but not nothing like that at all it was just ama- amazingly efficient i did it did make me feel really proud
1: helen lewis from the atlantic and Rosamond Owen from the sunday times next one of our pre-pandemic professors
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
1: Time for another one of our pre-pandemic professors. Every day this week, we're going to hear about the life and times of one of our favourite COVID experts because other than uh, hearing them all the time on the radio talking about COVID... What do we really know about them? They've had lives and careers pre-pandemic. So all this week, we're going to ask ask them about them. Yesterday, we heard from Professor Linda Bold.
4: Linda Bold is a professor of public health. At the in a moment, we'll hear Edinburgh. from Professor Linda Bold. Uh, Linda professor Bold of professor, of public, Linda Bold, professor, professor of, of public health at Edinburgh University. Professor of public health at University of Edinburgh. Edinburgh, Edinburgh, Edinburgh Linda Bold.
1: And how she was a big part of these smock, stop smoking campaigns in the late nineties. Today, the person we often turn to for insight into variants and vaccines, Professor Danny Altman. Danny Altman.
4: Danny Altman. Danny Altman. We'll ask Danny Altman. Professor, professor of, of immunology, Danny Altman.
1: Danny Altman. Danny Altman. Danny Altman. Good morning. Hello. Thank you very much for your time this morning. Um, first of all, could we start off by um, the, the way we introduce you all the time? We talk about you're, you're a professor of immunology uh, at uh, Imperial College London, uh, but you also you work in a lab in the, in the Hammersmith Hospital. Could you just sort of lay out what your work is at the moment? Maybe if it's, if it's more useful to do so, what it was just before the pandemic.
5: Yes. So um, just before the pandemic, we were doing, I suppose, quite related things, um, kind of global health infectious disease, immunity to infectious disease, I'm very keen on studies in Brazil on a virus called chikungunya in Vietnam, on a bacterium called Burkholderia and then you know the pandemic came and we became a lab working 24-7 on Covid. Doing what? Well this was a virus that we knew absolutely nothing about. We got the sequence of it on what January the 11th 2020 and as a lab where we had a, a lifetime of experience trying to understand immunity to infectious diseases, there was a whole, um, you know, medical textbook chapter to be written. Mm. Um, you know, think about, you know, 100 people get infected with the same virus. Some of them are untouched by it. Some of them get rather severely affected and some of them die. You know, what's the difference?
1: And in terms of those uh, other viruses and infections that you listed there that you're working on pre-pandemic, t- tell us about one of those and, and, and how you've come to work on that and what the what the challenges are with some of them.
5: Yeah. So one of the ones that I do love and I'm very interested in, I I love them all, but um, chikungunya virus in Brazil is an interesting one and very relevant to, it kind of informed our thinking about COVID. So this is a virus that you catch from a tiny mosquito, a bit like Zika or dengue or something, and you feel feverish and unwell and have a rash. And the reason it's terribly pertinent at the moment is that 30 or 40% of those people even once they recover from the virus, will have a chronic disability, a kind of arthritis that keeps them out of work, unwell, going back to clinic for years afterwards. So you can see the analogy there with long COVID, and that really quite informed our thinking.
0: Hmm.
1: I'm going to rewind uh, right back to the beginning, if I can, and ask you about your parents, because it seems like they had incredible lives, each of them.
5: Yes, I I come from one of those interesting... um, London German Jewish Holocaust survivor families, um, where, um, you know, it was a matter of coming to England, you know, post concentration camp and trying to rebuild a family, which they did.
1: And your dad, is it right that he fled on, on Kristallnacht? He was sort of, his family were caught up in that.
5: Yes. So, so, um, he came, um, with his brother um they were um 9 years old and 11 years old um and arrived um you know with with their cardboard suitcases and nothing else and had to um rebuild their lives as orphans yes
1: and for your mother's parts uh, she arrived in the UK after she was liberated from Auschwitz
5: yes yes so um you know a rather kind of devastated family where they they settled in London and and tried to um try to rebuild a family i guess as, as they'd remembered it in their childhood
1: And in terms of your um, first uh, sort of uh, associations with science um, in the household, was that something that other people were interested in? Did either of your parents work in that when you were growing up?
5: No, I I don't think there was much science around me. But to be honest, I'm I'm not really sure all these decades later if I am a scientist or if one ever becomes a scientist. (laughs) Science is just um, telling stories, really, which um, we all like doing.
1: But but what uh, what actually got you onto your your first well it was a, it was a degree course at the University of uh, of London what was it in microbiology,
5: yeah I I just um you know I'm curious about lots of things like as as many of us are, and I I, I loved um, immunology from a very young age so as a ooh, who knows as a, as a. 18 year old or 19 year old I went to hear a lecture by the person who just won a Nobel Prize Rolf Zinkernagel who discovered much of what we talk about now about how t-cells work and are restricted in their in their in their behavior and it really um triggered something in me
1: and in fact your your PhD that was to do with t-cells wasn't it just explain what those are for, for those thickos like me listening
5: Yes, so, so so to people like me, T cells are really um, mission control in in protective immunity. They're the intelligent white blood cells that say if there's something going wrong, whether it's a tumour or a bacteria or a virus, and think of clever, appropriate ways to respond to it. So I um, arrived at University of Bristol in September 1980 for the first t- for the first day of my PhD, and my supervisor said, uh, "You seem to understand about T cells. Why do not you just do something on that?" Um, and i did and what were you looking at it was specific I, I i was i was so so there and um, it was kind of the home of herpes viruses um things everything from epstein barr virus that causes um all oh, glandular fever and cancers and things to um herpes both the cultural version the gentle version mm-hmm. so so it was that family of, of viruses and at the time not much was understood about um how they were controlled by t-cells so i spent um three years having a whale of a time in bristol both socially and scientifically um (laughs) trying to sort out my little bit of it
1: and and as you uh, moved on through your your career your scientific career i wonder what were the what were the sort of big unanswered questions or areas that were um concerning and and interesting you
5: well I i think the thing i'd say is that it was a very it has been a very lucky time to be an immunologist because I'd argue that of all the branches of modern medicine and molecular medicine it's had some of the biggest breakthroughs and biggest returns Uh, you know at the beginning we were trying to understand um things like oh you know how would you make a really effective modern vaccine against an infectious disease or what is an autoimmune disease or how could you turn on the immune response to resist tumors better and cure cancers and all of those things have um come and been delivered in my professional lifetime. Not, not all of them, obviously, personally by me, mm. although I've you know, played little parts in, in, all, in all of those stories. But what, a, you know, what an exciting time to be doing this job.
1: And also, if, even if you weren't necessarily involved with some of those breakthroughs, you've been um, involved for quite a while, it seems, with... Um journals and research publications you're the the editor-in-chief of Oxford Open Immunology for 20 years you you edited the British Society for Immunology journals so all of these interesting things that were happening you had to be across and were coming across your desk.
5: Yes so part of my job is I do love um, everything to do with how we communicate science how we tell the stories how both scientifically and you know with our colleagues and also to the public so as you said I've, I've spent more than 20 years as an editor, also as an educator and, and lecturer to students. Um, because, you know, what is science? It's um, thinking of a really important question that hasn't been answered yet, trying to think of a, an experiment, a way of resolving what the answer is, and then finding some really beautiful words to communicate it to people so they'll understand it and believe you. So that's, uh, that's what I do.
1: And finally, finally Professor Altman, um, what about away from the science? Um, what, do you do to, what do you do to unwind? I'm thinking hobbies here.
5: Not not that much time anymore for hobbies, but I've got quite a a, a busy, demanding family. I also paint and draw a lot. And my my really big love is is heavyweight literature. So every morning, 5 to 6 a.m., I'm in my bath reading Tolstoy or Zola or Hardy or Wolf or something. And, um, you know, happy as Larry. When did you get into that habit? Oh, like, like many of these things, I, uh, long, long ago, um, you know, a girlfriend saying, you know, do you actually read any serious books? And thought, God, I'd better get onto this.
1: <laughs> so what are you reading at the moment?
5: Um, I'm, I'm reading, um, some, uh, some, um, some Zola. Um, yeah. and, uh, you know, one, really one of my fav- favorite, favorite, favorite authors. Um, I'd recommend him to, to anybody who hasn't picked one up.
1: That was Danny Altman, Professor of Immunology at Imperial College London. We'll have another uh, professorial biography tomorrow as well. Next, we're going to be talking trade.
6: We
3: import nine-tenths of all of our pears. We import two-thirds of our
2: cheese. That is a disgrace.
1: There is a pandemic on, the NHS almost toppled over twice and businesses up and down the land have been interrupted, starved or just totally killed off. Not quite the post-Brexit wonderland the government were hoping for. But work has continued on the international trade front. Many EU deals have been rolled over and Liz Truss has started work on new free trade deals beyond that we're going to be going through her entry this morning uh, here about what 's afoot with the u s and Canada from specialists there, and also the Chair of the Commons International Trade Committee will be live as well first, Australia, the deal that has been concerning government most at the moment. the Prime Minister set a deadline the other day to outline an agreement with Australia by the G7 summit that's in 11 days from now this would be the first deal to be built from scratch post brexit live with us this morning alexander downer former australian foreign minister and high commissioner to the uk good morning good morning first of all on that deadline um, by the G7 with all the issues which we keep hearing about do you think that's likely
7: yes i think that uh, that can be done there's been um, a good year of negotiations that have taken place and The slides have covered uh, seven or so different chapters of negotiations, looking at everything from services trade to goods trade, through to recognition of qualifications and so on. So there are a whole lot of issues that have been covered. Most of them are quite easy to cover, and it just boils down to reaching an agreement on goods trade. So Australia offers completely free access for all British exports into the Australian market without any... Tariffs and without any quotas, um, and obviously the Australian side expects that that to be reciprocated, yeah. and then the deal can be done.
1: Uh, Mr. Dan, it sounds like you're on you're on the other side of the room from your microphone. I wonder if you could find where it is and get a smidge closer. Um, I'm also interested about the, the extent to which the the beef issue, which we've been hearing so much about with this UK Australia trade deal, might hold things up. I'm thinking particularly about the the farming lobby in Australia and and how fiercely that they will fight this access to, uh, to to british markets for their beef Well,
7: I mean the italian farmers have been decades champions of free trade and they've never worried about competition from abroad and wouldn't have thought british farmers worried about that either prospered by being an open and free market australia it's not Australian farmers. I mean, the Australian government and the Australian parliament are of the view that if we offer the UK free access to the Australian market, um, that will obviously investments for businesses. Will we expect
1: to be reciprocated? Mr Downer, I think we're going to leave it there because the line is uh, not the best, uh, but I think we just about got the gist. Thanks very much for your time. That's Alexander Downer, former Australian foreign minister and high commissioner to the UK on the Australian uh, UK trade deal which is in the works also on liz Truss's to-do list is the us the uk government very keen to strike up an agreement with them but has the the transition from trump to biden affected this and is chlorinated chicken really still the big issue uh, we've been hearing from hillary fordwich from the british american business association
4: President Biden, of course, has Irish roots and has been very forceful with his sort of disregard and lack of support for Brexit initially. Now, I do think he's under a lot of pressure from American farmers, finance, and the whole data and technology industry to have a U.S. trade deal completed with the U.K. A few issues and where there are sticking points, and it looks like there are some positive areas and sticking points. One of the sticking points, interestingly enough, looks like it will be with regard to the NHS. Of course, the National Health Service held with great regard, you know, the minds and the souls and the hearts of the British public, particularly through the COVID epidemic. And the US pharmaceutical industry, which has immense power and a lobbying force, wants to have access to promote drugs um, to the UK and to have the NHS purchase them probably at a higher price than they already do. So that would put financial pressure on the NHS. So that's one of the issues. Another of the issues, of course, is agriculture uh, with regard to chicken. And we've often heard about the chlorinated chicken coming from the US, uh, but also the hormones that are given to um, the the, the beef industry and the the cattle in the US, and also pork, the rearing um, um, sort of practices in the US. So they're called the sanitary and photosanitary standards the SPS, and these standards would have to be lowered somewhat um, either from the UK side or raised from the US side. So there is talk about lowering, as a sort of a back entrance route, lowering tariffs and making US farm products that don't use hormones, making them more able to be exported to the UK, because that would open up another channel. And, of course, in the U.S., you know, many of us buy our foods that, that don't have the chloro, that aren't chlorinated and don't have the hormones in specialty stores. I think you'll see tariffs removed and lowered on those to encourage that to be possible. So actually, that seems
1: like a very neat workaround. So it doesn't sound like yeah. it will be the great um, the great sticking point that maybe it's been talked up to be.
4: Let's hope not.
1: Yes. And in terms of uh, timescales, um, we're talking years here, aren't we?
4: Well, let's hope not. The Biden administration is looking to do as much as they possibly can to get things done because, obviously, they want to look good. We have the, there's a midterm election coming up in 22, so the Biden administration wants to have as many wins under their belt as possible. So, what does that mean? Uh, you could th- you'd think, well, you know, the public's voting, voting yes, but the lobbies in the US have immense power. So, I mentioned the agricultural lobby. Um, there's a, a Dave um, Salmon, He is the head of the U.S. Agricultural Farmers, the lobbying wing of that um, organization. And he's already said, to your earlier point, that the U.S. farmers are watching very closely those negotiations that are going on with Australia to see how far the U.K. is willing to go in terms of standards. So when you look at the, the time frame, you look at the U.S. lobby. So we've got agriculture and then there's the tech industry. Another issue here is in the U.K., there are greater protections for the individual um, who uses technology and data protection, as well as financial protection, mm. higher standards than there are in the U- US. And that is something that both sides are going to have to negotiate. What will that mean? Which side is willing to concede to make sure that there's um, agreements? I think the overriding big picture here is that it's in the interest of both nations to get a deal done as quickly as possible. So actually, no, I don't think it will be years. I'm think it will be before the 22 midterms so that the democrats can list something else under their belt
1: but in terms of the the body of work that's needed to go through because i guess the uk didn't already have an existing free trade agreement with the us via its membership of the eu there is so much up for grabs as you say
4: there is. Absolutely. Yes. And something that I haven't mentioned, of course, is in addition to all of those and the, and the NHS, et cetera, are you've got the the data protections. We didn't talk about the financial industry. Well, the financial yes. industry in the U.S., Wants access to the City of London. That is a vast lobby. You have the whole, obviously, you know, New York um, uh, power brokers and uh, the weight and the influence that they have. They want greater access, so they want access to to the City of London, and they want that because, of course, now with the the regulations changing with regard to the EU, there has been a lot of US banks, for example, Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs, setting up operations in the UK. So the UK wants to make things as appealing as they possibly can for the financial sector.
1: Hilary Fordwich of the British American Business Association on the prospects of a... UK-US trade deal. We'll move deeper into Liz Truss's in-trade now and think about Canada. I was hearing from Colin Robertson, Vice President and Fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, who told me that whilst there were lots of opportunities to be created from an enhanced free trade deal with Canada, Canadian businesses most of all were looking for continuity from the current trading system with the UK.
6: Well, I think the average uh, person who trades wants to have continuity. He doesn't want to have any interruptions because the UK is such an important trading partner, not just for goods, but also for services. And there's a lot of investment coming from the UK into Canada. So essentially what Canadians want is continuity. And I think we'll take this opportunity to perhaps take a look at how we can update and make some improvements. The, the, the base is going to be the Canada, Europe, uh, what we call the Comprehensive Economic Trade Agreement uh, which had been negotiated with the UK and the other members of the European Union uh, four years ago. After it. it took about ten years, and so and and Britain was a major player in that. Britain, in particular, pushed hard on the Strategic Partnership Agreement, which is separate from the the uh, the trade agreement, but covers almost everything else: politics, defense, uh, security, uh, science, cooperation, that kind of thing.
1: And so, what is left, maybe, first of all, on on the table for, for the Canadians in, in terms of enhancing the agreement with the UK? What actually might they want to do that that goes beyond what's already been agreed?
6: Well, I think we'll take a look at the investment chapter, the investment dispute to chapter, which has been quite controversial within Europe and is probably holding up the ratification by the member countries. That the issue would be uh, what we call investor dispute. What it what it means is that if 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 a government body is involved in something, it can be argued that this is constitutes a subsidy or interference by that government. Yes. And uh, there are also sub-state actors. Canada, of course, is a federation. Our provinces are involved, and our provincial governments sometimes take legislative, particularly in a regulatory fr- uh, front, uh, related to, say, the environment. Mm. They may say a certain additive that is used in Britain is not permissible here, uh, that would potentially give the british uh exporter grounds for uh, li- liability action if this action happened after they 'd already had an existing trading relationship interestingly enough though whenever we
1: talk about these uh these trade deals i mean we've just heard in terms of the u k one with Australia the thing holding that up is uh, beef cattle farming and that seems to be that the, the uh the, the point of dispute, especially here in the UK, with the American one, it's the idea of chlorinated chicken all of a sudden entering our markets, and with the Canadian one, ready to continue the food theme, Boris Johnson only the other day saying that that the UK was eager to uh, secure a, a much more wide-ranging deal with Canada because
6: he wants to get affordable, high-quality British cheese to Canada. Right, and and this, and you've just put your finger on it. We have different standards, as you say. That the Americans have what they call chlorinated chickens. The uh, Australians, like the Canadians in their beef, probably use hormones. To your point on the cheese and dairy products, we work on a kind of a quota system so that farmers can produce so much uh, milk product which goes into cheese, which of course is at issue here. And we, to preserve that, we have very high tariffs ranging from 250 to 300 percent. Effectively, this keeps out any foreign cheese because the tariff is prohibitive. Mm. But what we have negotiated over time with trading partners is what we call tariff weight quotas. And In other words, there's a certain amount of cheese that Britain could export to Canada without the tariff supplying. It's very low. We've only opened up about 4% of our market. When we negotiated with the European Union, the Comprehensive Economic Trade Agreement, the British were pushing us hard to open up our our, our dairy market, essentially cheese market, and we did, but of course the European Union, when Britain uh, Brexited from that, yes. they kept most of those quotas. So the British will be starting, in a sense, from a, a more vulnerable position because they'll be saying, well, we'd like to now to increase that access to the Canadian market. The Canadian dairy farmers are going to say, no, no, not a chance. We've already opened up our market to the Europeans and to the Americans, we're talking about a, uh, a a politically powerful group of farmers who have significant votes within, particularly within Quebec, which is always our battleground province, and to some extent in Ontario. So that's going to be a heavy lift on the British side. What are the heavy lifts? Do you think there might be? And what are the what are the key objectives made from the Canadian side? You touched on um, services, Beef and financial services. Beef uh, and pork, also just more the, more. Yeah. more goods, yeah, I don't think there'll be much uh, on on the services side. Uh, there, the I think there'll be broader agreement. Mm. We'll be pushing for things like mutual accreditation. That is, can a lawyer who's accredited in Britain practice in Canada? Yeah. Well, perhaps they may have to pass a bar exam, or an architect, uh, or an engineering firm. You know, data is now the new gold, and so how are we going to manage that? The data flows, I think, is going to be something important. And, and that's where this might be path breaking, because I think both British and Canadian negotiators will say, OK, maybe we can set the standard, which then the rest of Europe might take and, and the United States might take. This, this is uh, fallow ground uh, for, uh, I think, some degree of experimentation mm-hmm. and uh, development, which could have broader application. You know, we had an agreement with, almost had an agreement with Britain, I think, before Brexit when Liam Fox was the uh, trade minister, but then he went out and said, well, we're gonna reduce all tariffs, at which point the Canadian negotiators said, well, why would we do an agreement with Britain if they're gonna reduce all their tariffs? Mm. The British government has since changed how they have approaching these trade agreements. And that's why we should be able to work this out. And from a British perspective, it's important because Canada is a, is a, a integral member of two trade plurilateral agreements that the United Kingdom would like to get access to. First, the United States. So if you work a deal out with Canada, in a sense, you set the stage because the standards that you'll have to meet are would be roughly equivalent to the standards that already apply to North American free trade and to the, the truly high-level uh, Trans-Pacific Agreement that already exists and includes notably Japan.
1: Colin Robertson, Vice President and Fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, talking to me earlier on. Fire! We're thinking trade this morning on Times Radio. We are leafing through Liz Trusser's in-trade. We keep hearing a lot about this Australian trade deal, but what about the prospects for one, for the US, for, for Canada? We've just taken a hop, skip and a jump uh, through some of them. But uh, let's pick the brain of a, of a trade expert now. Sam Lowe is an expert in international trade policy and a C- senior research fellow at the Centre for European Reform. Uh, morning, Sam. Good morning. First of all, on the Australian trade deal and the prime Minister's suggesting that that's going to be wrapped up by the G7, uh, he hopes. How likely is that? Do you think?
8: I think it's quite probable that it will be wrapped up by then. It seems to be certainly the ambition of the UK and 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 the Australians. I think are, are keen to get a win as well. You know, getting one, get yeah. it done before the New Zealanders certainly plays well at home.
1: And in terms of what has happened. With that and uh, what has been gained, so some of the concessions are on the UK side. This is our first post-Brexit non-EU rollover trade deal. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, yep. So, what does that mean for future trade deals? Be that with you know Canada, as we've been he- just hear about, hearing about, or, or the US.
8: Yeah, so it's, it's a good question because a lot of the discussion around the Australia, UK. Agreement and the negotiations of it have been around this idea that the UK is going to offer duty and quota free trade to the Australians, which means no tariffs at all. Yeah. And this is in and of itself unusual between developed countries in that usually there's some tariffs remain in place largely for agri food type products, and those are dealt with via tariff rate quotas. So we're talking about quite an ambitious level of tariff liberalisation. And I suppose the question is does this create a precedent or is it a template? for the UK's negotiations with other countries in future. And my sort of view on this is that I think that if if the, The Australia deal truly is duty and quota free. That does indeed set a precedent for the negotiations with New Zealand. Mm. But beyond that, it's quite hard to be certain because the context changes quite a lot. Because even because you were discussing Canada before this, you know, it's it's very unlikely the Canadians are going to want duty and quota free trade because they want want to be able to continue to protect their dairy industry. Yeah. In the absence of reciprocity, it's unlikely the UK will offer them the same, and you know the same is true of the US. It would be true of other countries such as India and the like you know, that we've expressed an interest in. So, I'm cautious on the precedent point, just because it's, it's it's there's not that many countries in the world that are going to actually want duty and quota free trade.
1: But what about other areas? We keep hearing about agri-foods so often whenever we talk about these trade deals. <laughs> but it's, I, I don't well, I would, I wouldn't necessarily know how big uh, of a of a chunk it is in terms of our trade between, you know with the US and and Canada. But we services and financial services and the like must surely dwarf it. And I wonder why that doesn't get a mention as as often. Is that just because it's a sort of slightly more easier thing to
8: to deal with? So, so it's easier to discuss tariffs. People can understand that more readily in that we talk about a sort of 10% tax on imports and getting rid of it. When it comes to liberalising services trade, it just gets much more tricky very quickly in that you're talking about regulatory differences, uh, sort of recognition of qualifications and the like. And, and the truth of the matter is just that trade agreements don't do very much when it comes to opening up new markets for services trade because it's so difficult to get agreement on these regulatory Mm. issues. To to, to, to recognise, say, that a foreign regulator can sign off that a company operating there is allowed to sell sell into the UK market and that if anything goes wrong, it will hold that company to account, it's tricky and it usually requires deeper levels of regulatory integration and harmonisation. But saying that, we are going to see some progress in some of these areas we've already saw it with uk japan which was a partial rollover with some bolt-ons last year yeah. when it had some interesting provisions on digital so not necessarily opening up new things but commitments not to for example tax data flows or require mm. the onshoring of computer servers we're going to see more of that in uk australia it might even go further and i'd assume we see that in uk canada and the like and also we might see some chapters on gender And the like. So because that's something the Canadians are quite keen on. So we will see some additions. But but the politics of this often just come down to food. And I'm (laughs) sure you're talking about it.
1: Always comes down to cheese in the end. Thank you, Sam. I appreciate it. That's Sam Lowe from the Centre for European Reform. Uh, Live with us, we've also got Angus McNeill, the SNP MP and also chair of the Parliamentary Select Committee for International Trade. Morning. Good morning, how's that? Thanks so much for your time this morning. Would you say that in terms of all the EU deals so far that that we've uh, rolled over, the Australian deal is well well underway, hope to be wrapped up by the G7, work is underway for trade deals beyond that, we're in good shape so far in terms of our um, post-Brexit deal striking?
9: Well, we have to ask ourselves what the deals are for and what we're hoping to achieve as a current UK. Um, I suppose when I look at the UK government, I've said this for a while, they've got the They've got the air of uh, Neville Chamberlain coming back with a piece of paper shouting peace in our time. Uh, they've got the air of coming back desperately shouting trade deals in our time. And I think the Australians, uh, particularly in the New Zealanders, also understand this. And uh, they've um, been quite audacious in their ask and they've been uh, quite successful. I mean, uh, I know in the, to use the, the cricket analogy of sort of England-Australia, there's quite a rivalry there in something called the Ashes. Uh, well, the... Um, the 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 victory here by Australia is probably likely to dwarf that. They've been bold and they've got one over the palms, and they probably can't believe quite what they've got. They've got a backup market if anything goes wrong for them in the in the Far East. Um it's quite quite an amazing. I mean, you should take your hats off to Australia for what they've achieved here. It's not so good for uh, farmers on, on on this side with that sort of sort of Damocles hanging over them. But you know, if we if the UK walks out of and, that, and the root of this is numbers and economics and the numeracy is the friend of, of brexit but i'm going to try with some numbers here mm. the cost of brexit to the uk is 4.9 percent of gdp on the gain from the australian trade deal is 0.02 percent and if i put that in, in in just another set of figures it's like throwing away four pounds 90 for a two pence gain a two pence gain uh, that's 245 times smaller and for that two pence gain you're risking. Uh, and playing fast and loose with farming in the current UK. Uh, that is not, from a UK point of view, that is not very good. Mm. From an Australian point of view, I mean, they've hit the boundary or whatever, hit a six from each and every over and each and every ball Um this is the best ashes series that they've ever had, and you know it's UK farming that's going to end up in, in ashes potentially and, as a result.
1: I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily want to relitigate the the Brexit referendum, but in terms of the the, the situation that, that we find ourselves in now, and uh, as we we're just hearing from Sam Low, the issue does, as you as you've also mentioned, always quite quickly comes down to to farming and and to food. Um, it seems like there there could be some quite creative workarounds in terms of uh, risks. To the UK market, we were just hearing about uh, the possible UK-US free trade agreement, and actually there might be a, a way in which you can actually open up access between the two countries in a free market. But actually, uh, chlorinated chicken doesn't get, come in; it's only food that actually meets our standards which can come in from the US. You can have a kind of uh, two tariff uh, flexible uh, system.
9: I mean that <clears throat> that sounds fine when, when you when you start off, but then. There's it's whack a And then what's, what is your um, interaction then with your nearest, largest neighbour on your doorstep who happens to be a massive trading block uh, that's bigger than the USA? Uh, what do they do to your products if you've got this stuff coming in? Now, remember, there's nothing really wrong, wrong with the chlorine in the chicken. We've chlorinated lettuce all the time. Yes. What's wrong with chlorinated chicken is because of the hygiene standards, they have to chlorinate uh, the chicken to make sure that less people have food poisoning. And um, so that's sort of one of the, the arguments against that. But once you start opening your door to that, that seems fine domestically, but it's the, the reaction of your neighbour that you've got a lot more trade with. Uh, and if they have an allergic reaction to that, you've got greater troubles and you've stored up greater troubles. And this is why the, you know, the, the, the numbers are going, the 4.9% of GDP hit that is Brexit. Uh, and the UK government's idea and the way they've sold this to many people is to have trade deals to make it up. But the trade deals, even with America, uh, uh, is, is a fraction. Uh, of the damage of Brexit and all the trade deals in every country in the world at the best are probably going to make up, let me see, about a seventh or an eighth of the damage of Brexit. Um, So the UK is risking a lot in trade deals and every other country in the world knows this when the UK comes knocking at the door for a trade deal. Here they go, rub our hands, they're desperate for a trade deal, we're not. Uh, If they're desperate to sell and we're not desperate to buy, obviously in that situation you've got a bargain coming on and that's a point to do at the beginning the australians have yeah. <laughs> i've done i 've done well here they 've really done very well
1: there we go done and dusted we have solved all international trade concerns for the uk we 've done the job you 're welcome uh, that is it from the podcast thanks very much for downloading uh, do join me again tomorrow we 're going to be uh, hearing from another Professor Susan Mickey, actually, I think it is who we're talking to tomorrow, who has an incredible uh, story about the things that she was researching. Remember, if you like the podcast, if you click like or stars, five stars, whatever that is, do that. It's a good thing. Subscribing also helps. Uh, I'm Luke Jones, the in Chorley. I'll be back tomorrow.
0: Thanks for listening. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
6: Hey, it's Danny
0: Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods,